Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's about half a minute to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, his journey to activism in support of Palestine. I'll be speaking with Robert Martin, who's a, a newcomer to the Palestinian program every Saturday morning, 9.30, called Palestine Remembered. Three neo-Nazis in court yesterday in Melbourne at the Magistrates' Court in the city. Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism. We'll be looking into the reasons why they were in court, what happened on the day and what's likely to happen in the near future. Opposition to the reopening of the Panguna Mine in Bougainville. You might remember that it was closed down by the local landowners a long time ago now, but the result was a land and sea blockade by PNG with support a lot of support from Australia and the resulting 20,000 people died in Bougainville and you can imagine why most of the people in Bougainville do not want that mine reopened. I'll be speaking with Vicky Johns who's a member of the Bougainville Freedom Movement. What really is happening in Mindanao in the Philippines? Trade Union and Human Rights Activist Peter Murphy has an idea about that and I'll be speaking with him True. But first, let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy. And as usual, it's been his week. A week, Jane, listener, when it's time to make a list of those evil, evil countries who cannot be allowed to have nuclear weapons, evil, warmongering nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction, and good, good countries who must have good, peace-loving nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. Good nuclear weapons and bad nuclear weapons. The peace-loving list forced to use its peace-loving weapons on the warmongering list to ensure world peace after a little hiatus of world non-peace known traditionally as war. A little bit of war to ensure a whole lot of peace. Notice there's an asterisk attached there. Let's check down the bottom here. Asterisk. Oh, if the world still exists, but then great military thinkers and great leaders like the US of the UN of the US of the world, Big Supremo and Commander-in-Chief Donald Trump or the PAR, argue logically and philosophically that even if the world, well, the planet no longer exists as in being capable of maintaining human life, it will be a peaceful non-exist. The alternative, if evil warmongers are allowed to threaten world peace, is too awful to contemplate. Very bad. Very bad. And don't forget, the US of has a whole, whole lot of experience in the keeping the peace to a little bit of non-peace business. It's never not doing it. Great responsible world citizen that it is. And if true blue Aussie followed, 
well, not if, when True Blue Aussie takes its orders and follows the US op into maintaining peace, we suppose our big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull, egged on by former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses et al, will hold a postal ballot, or sorry, postal survey, to give the True Blue Aussie people a say. The same et al's have been complaining about perfidious terra nullius non-people and their supporters attempting to erase history and this week we were reminded of one of the great coincidences in True Blue Aussie history. Imagine how Captain Cook, who discovered this country, must have been so pleasantly surprised to navigate a northern river and discover the river, what a coincidence, had the same name as his ship, Endeavour. The Endeavour River, a great moment in history, yet there are goody-goody black armband revisionists who would want to change the name of the Endeavour River to some unpronounceable surrender to a vocal minority. Last week, we also praised the Minister for Razor Wire, Concentration Camps and Sink the Boats and Keeping Us Secure, Peter Duffer, for his introduced species eradication campaign, starve them to death and or send them to a tropical island. And I thought, very chameleon-like, this particular introduced species. A quick look at them, and we would swear they were human beings just like us. How insidious. As we said, thank goodness we've got Peter Duffer protecting us from them. I raise that because on such matters, real people and chameleon introduced species, non-real people, Lord Rupert of Wapping's sin coverage of two parallel related events captured the difference perfectly with Lord Rupert's normal journalistic responsibility. Four piggies, big story of the Texan hurricane, death toll at least 31, along with massive damage, then, in brief, just three pars, more than a thousand people killed across India, Bangladesh and Nepal by massive monsoon floods, showing the difference between real people and non-real people, even though both disasters can be related to the massive oil and chemical industries that flourish and are the economic lifeline of Texas and Houston, captured by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, whose coverage of the hurricane bemoaned that the poor old big True Blue Aussie bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, BHP, had to cease production. And other oil and chemical giants, ditto. And news story and double page spread Friday covering the economic disaster for the energy industry and likely shortages and cost increases, the impact on the world economy, the great world fossil giants, victims of climate change, poor dear. As if, if as the Texan fossil giants tell us, there is such a thing as climate change. Without the Capitalist Review mentioning anything about the ordinary non-boardroom Texans affected, oh, and not even a line about the monsoon disaster, but then there's no serious impact on the world economy, and presumably the clothing sweatshops can keep operating. After all, most of the workers are locked in anyway, and if there's flooding, they may as well stay inside and keep themselves busy, as long as the building doesn't burn down or, or collapse. 
In such an uncertain world, I'm pleased to bring us a touch of continuity, of sanity. Raise us from the depression that has befallen us, unable to sleep, tossing and turning all night with worry, since the news that a U.S. of tele-network had outsmarted U.S. of base Lachlan, scion of the U.S. OBS Lord Rupert, in taking over our Channel 10. Lockie complaining that media legislation changing the unfair rule that he can't own just everything to allow him to own just everything had been held up by the spoil sports in the Senate. Although I've got a feeling the legislation will eventually get passed with Nick Xenophone et al. coming around as usual. Anyway, our big fear, our very favourite programs might disappear under the new US of owner. Well, great news. Seems certain hits. That's what the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin called them, hits. Master Chef, True Blue Aussie, have you been paying attention? Hawaii Five-O, Blue Bloods, Undercover Boss, The Bold and the Beautiful, and I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here. No, no, that's not me crying for help, listener. It's one of our favourite hits. We'll continue. What a relief. Now we can get to sleep at night again. Seriously, if they are the channel's hits, then I think we've fingered why Channel Lockie, Jamie Puker and Gina is a financial disaster. Still, top marks to Lord Rupert for expressing concern through his whopping sin. A US of person in a, in, in a true blue Aussie news, Lord Rupert wants us to read paper, expressing concern for the poor old Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country taxpayers, devoting a whole front page and a double picky spread inside this morning to the poor old British taxpayer being hit with yet another mouth to feed. And support for its lifetime in the luxury to which its family is accustomed. This in a week when the same respectable Lord Rupert outlet informed us the eldest of the young highest paid doll budgers in the world would hit the same taxpayers with a $50,000 plus a year primary school bill. Wait till he gets into higher education. But fair enough, it's not your average common public school the taxpayers send their kids to, or to which, as they'll learn in their grammar lessons. Oh, and we can join Lord Rupert's excitement in speculating what the new little doll budger's name might be. We could spend hours having fun with that one. Other less prestigious newspapers wasted their front pages on far less critical issues like a potential world war. On war, mention how Malcolm and Co. will put it to a 122 million postal survey. Now, this survey we may be having, whose result will not be binding anyway, the consequences could be catastrophic if it goes the wrong way. Vote yes, and every little boy will be going to school in a skirt, and every little girl, well they didn't say, but presumably a, a jockstrap, perhaps just a jockstrap, disgusting. Haven't these same-sex marriage advocates got a lot to answer for? And the no-lot know that ultimately they'll have to answer the, the wallowing in sin advocates, that is, to the highest authority of all, the dear baby Jesus. Although he wore a skirt, of course, or more a long white dress. 30-year-old single man hanging around with 12 blokes in a long white dress. Hmm. 
But no, no, no. The sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman comes from the dear baby. He's the legal precedent for the no case. No case against and a very positive result. State caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo mafia you guy who's making the electorate an offer it can't refuse said the corruption authority he had referred his lobster with a mobster to, well to which he had to be grammatically correct again, had cleared him of any misconduct. His interpretation of it saying it had no jurisdiction in the matter which was a smart move by Mafia Yu, referring his own case to a body that ruled it had no jurisdiction to look at it anyway. That proves I'm innocent. Mafia Yu looked very pleased with himself. If you disagree, I'll send my friends around. And I'm sure there's many a defendant who wishes he or she could refer his or her own case to a court which has no jurisdiction to hear it and then declare him or herself not guilty. Just not sure in Mafia Yu's case this proves he's absolutely innocent. Finally, see where a coffee joint offering help to the unemployed by taking on a bit of free labour under this internship scheme helped a worker by allowing him work to work 50-something hours a week for nothing. Great training. What a dedicated caring employer. After all, the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Kosh, the workers, ridiculed criticisms that just maybe a free labour scheme could be open to the odd touch of exploitation. So obviously in this case, a caring employer prepared to go just that little bit further to help, take that extra step over and above. And to help even further, caring employers want the no worker can be worse off clause in agreements removed so they can help even more workers. They're all heart. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And as I say every week... If you haven't got enough of Kevin on a Tuesday, you're going to have a whole hour on a Wednesday. Kevin and his friends present City Limits on 3CR. If you've got an old analogue phone, it's 3cr.org.au. If you have the digital, your 3CR. And if you'd like to watch it sitting with your laptop, computer, it's 3CR. .org.au streaming for a week or you can have it sent to your computer to watch, listen you can't watch, you can listen to it at your leisure and that's also findable at 3cr.org.au 13 minutes past 4 Join Ruminations on Thursday, September 14 at 12pm to 1pm as we head down the river to South Bank. For this special broadcast, we'll be handing over the mic to people currently experiencing homelessness and staying in crisis accommodation. So tune in on Thursday, September 14, between 12 and 1 p.m. as Ruminations goes to South Bank and hear the voices and stories of people currently experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. People come to activism in many different ways, in different circumstances. 
Today we follow the path of Robert Martin, who recently joined the Palestine Remembered program here at 3CR on Saturday mornings at 9.30. Joining Yusuf and Nasser, both Palestinians. Robert, was your introduction to Palestine through your colleague at work, Nasser? So I've had a friend for over 20 years who is my best friend, Nasser Nashley, and he's Palestinian. And for 15 years he was telling me about Palestinian issues, what's going on in Palestine, what Israel's doing to the Palestinians. I attended lunches, dinners, had informal conversations, but also went for Run for Palestine, which is raising awareness. And nothing really got through my subconscious. And I now put it down to the media doing a fantastic job because he would tell me things and then I would watch the news and I would always hear that you know, the Palestinians are terrorists, Palestinians want the destruction of Israel, and that the poor Israelis were just trying to protect themselves. Well, over time when I started digging, I figured out that this isn't quite the case. So July 2014 came, which was the Gaza strike, and I reached out to some Palestinians that were living in Gaza at the time, and I spoke to them via Skype and the internet, and all of a sudden they became humans. But was, was it about that strike in 2014? There had been others before that. Why then? Yeah, so before that, nothing really hit me. I was a, probably a typical Aussie, had some kids, was too busy with my own life. You know, I was led to believe that it's been happening for thousands of years, it's so far away. What the hell does that have to do with me? And I think that's unfortunately what happens to a lot of people. But this particular one, Nasser and I worked together. And during the 2014 strike, I used to go into his office in the mornings. Uh, and there was one particular morning where you know, he was in tears. And he said to me something that really hit home. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. He said, Rob, when the kids that are dying look exactly like yours, it affects you. You can't sleep. You can't do anything. And it was that day that I really started to figure it out because my kids are as white as snow. And if there was a horrific event going on in the world and the kids were white, I tell you to be everywhere. And the white population of the world would be saying, hey, stop it. But that's not the society we live in. So I reached out in July 2014 and you know, met some Palestinians via the internet and they were humanised to me. And you know, I had deep conversations with some of them during the bombings. You, know, you had a mother and a father brothers and sisters, they were petrified, all they wanted to do was live. This particular guy, Mahmoud Arafat, he wanted to help kids in Palestine, wanted to help them eat, wanted them to help educate them, wanted them to have a hope, and it dug really deep to me. How difficult was it to get onto him? He reached out to me at the same time I was looking for people, because I used to write on some of the, the major websites, BBC, NBC, you know, The Australian here, because I was looking at electronic intifada and Mondo Wines, different papers and different articles, and I'd see two stories. And I would on, you know, say the Australian, they'd say, oh, Israel under attack again. Well, I'd post comments on this saying, what about these 15 kids dying? What about an occupation? What about this? And because I was a white guy in Australia, non-religious, had nothing to do with the cause, I got a lot of traction. And, like, overnight I ended up with, like, 10,000 followers and friends which surprised me, but that also, I felt a responsibility. And the one thing that I've learned is that I can have a Palestinian say exactly word for word what I say, and I can say it, they tend to believe me, and this is the society that we live in. And so, so once I did that, I had a lot of people from Gaza and Palestine reach out to me saying, oh my goodness, you know, wonderful, thank you. And I, I took that pretty seriously and got to know a lot of them. 
Tell us more about the stories that they were telling you during those 55 days of absolute terror. They'd have no power. They'd hear um, the sirens go or the, or the jets coming across. They're used to this sort of thing, but not as much where 2,200 people die. And you can hear the terror. You can hear that the world is demonising them. And so they say, Rob, all we want is to live in freedom. We don't want your charity. We actually just want to be here living in peace. And Israel wants to end us. And that's the case. And so when you start to hear these voices, and, you know, he was a, he was a young kid, he was probably 24, and I connected with him immensely. And then other stories that I hear from, uh, you know, people that have been, they have lost family members, a mum and a dad. They've lost a brother and a sister. They've been shot themselves or intimidated themselves. It's, it's a horrible thing that once you connect to it, you can't put it down. And, of course, there's no ending for something like that. A war is on, but you never know when it's going to end. Who, who else is going to die? Well, you'd be living in fear, hmm. and you do live in fear. And I don't think people in the West could comprehend the fact that not only are these people being abused and demonised, they're getting completely blamed for this, like it's their fault. Now, if there's any people in the world that should have an issue with the Jewish population, it should be the Palestinians, because Israel has done so much damage to them they did not cause the Holocaust, but they're paying the price. But they don't hate the Jews. They're against Zionism. And this is an experience that I've had, first-hand experience, because I went over, um, and I asked all of them that I spoke, what do you think of the Jewish people? As I asked the Israelis, what do you think of Palestinians? And that's, uh, you know, but they're peaceful people. They've got children. They want to give them jobs. They want to give them hopes. But the UN has said that Gaza will be uninhabitable by 2020 or maybe even a little bit before. So how would you feel? <laughs> when did you decide to go? So when I was writing on the major websites, I had a few people call me anti-Semitic, have a real go at me and say, you have no idea what you're talking about, Rob. Have you ever been? And I said, no, you're right, I haven't. But have you? So many people have not gone. So I decided to go, packed my bags and I went, uh, I flew in. And, be, and the reason I went is... I wanted to see for my own eyes. I'd read, obviously, two sides in the newspapers, and so I went. And I went on a couple of tours, but I also immersed myself in the villages because I know that if I go in with a, with a tour guide, they're going to you know, point me in one direction. And so I didn't do that. But going into... I, I, as I went in through Allenby Bridge, my first exposure to the difference between the way people were treated was I was told if I wanted to jump the queue to go through. And I could see these corrals and these bars and these mothers and fathers and kids and old people lining up to go, go through. And they said, you know, do you want to come through? And I said, no, no, I'll wait. And the soldiers were, like, annoyed at me because I refused to do that. And I don't think that happens in our country because I know when I come back from overseas, being a citizen, I get the rush queue. It's the overseas people that have a problem, but not over there. And that's when I, you know, I started to think, wow, something is going on here. That bridge is between what countries? Is that Palestine and Israel? Jordan. Jordan. So I went through Jordan okay. uh, yeah, so in Amman. And it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting bus ride when you get through because they're soldiers. Today they're not actually soldiers. They wear white T-shirts, and I saw a few of these guys. It's unusual for us because to see young guys maybe in their 20s wearing you know, black pants, white T-shirt, and carrying these enormous guns is an eye-opener. Is an eye-opener. That was your first impression? That was my first sight, yeah. And it's, you know, it's pretty intimidating when you see that sort of thing. But it got me when they said, you can come through, sir. 
don't worry, these people can wait, you can go through. Where did you go first? So I went through, I went into Jerusalem, but after, after a day or so I decided to go into Berlin. Berlin is a, is a, vi- a village where Five Broken Cameras was filmed. Now that's an award-winning, award-nominated film about um, a village where five actual cameras were broken. Uh, during the protests, just describe the village. Where is it, and how many? So, Berlin is a is a village where you can see the settlement, huge settlements from not too far away. You can see an enormous wall, and it is an enormous wall. And so, Hamdi, who was a photographer, because I stayed with his family for a while, the first day that we were there, we walked over toward to the wall. We wouldn't have been three hundred meters towards it, and a jeep came down and they stood on top of their jeep, and they pointed their M16 at us. I know they were doing what's called scoping. They looked through their scope, but you know, I've never had a M16 pointed at me like that. And they asked what we were doing there. And I said, I'm having a look at the wall. And they said, well, you can't be here. I said, well, we're on this side of the wall, and you're on that side of the wall. We're not even close. And for those that don't know, the village is not big. They've lost a lot of their land because Israel's colonialism is slowly pushing out. Now, this particular wall is an eyesore, but it's taken a lot of this village's land, and so it's not hard to find. We got told to leave. They threw what's, you know, stun grenades, they're called. And, you know, they're pretty loud, and they just threw them at us. We went back, and I spent a lot of time with, with the kids and the families, and I've never felt so comfortable amongst these people. And as I said before, I asked how they felt living here what they wanted the world to do, what we can do. Speaking to the older generation, how everything's changed, uh, you can see the pain in their eyes. Uh, A lot of the fights disappeared from them. But you've got the younger generation that are wanting to stand up and there's Palestine is in their heart like I've never seen in anyone. And that standing up is every Friday. So there's a march on uh, every Friday and I went to that march and, you know, definitely peaceful. There's kids, elderly, young people. And there's also... Activists from all over the world fly in because it's become a, a bit of an event. And we would have walked 20, 30 metres and I hear this and wondered what it was. But we did see all of the, there's a whole lot of, maybe 150 soldiers on the top of the hill, which is pretty intimidating, but I thought maybe they'll just stay there. Well, they start firing the, the gas canisters towards us. And to me, that shows an arrogance because they know that this particular village is a show to the world as well. And so there are activists from all over the world with cameras, but yet they still treat them like this. And, you know, the soldiers, they throw the, they shoot the grenades or the, um, the canisters towards the olive trees and towards homes. And I saw some homes burning and there was an old lady that came out. Her, her only thing that she's done wrong was being Palestinian, living there. She just happens to live in Berlin and her house almost burnt down and the soldiers don't care. Once everyone disperses, they come down in the, the soldiers come down with their jeeps and they start shooting to make sure that you go away and the reason is they don't want anyone protesting, they don't want anyone showing the world what's really going on But they're protesting on Palestinian land, they're not exactly. protesting on Israeli land Exactly. And so that's something that, and thanks for mentioning it, that's something that people need to know is that Berlin is a Palestinian village there is no need for the IDF or the Israeli Defence Force to be there None. The only reason they go there is to demean the Palestinians, to provoke, to show them who's boss, and to say, just be quiet. 
but the Palestinians, they're not going to lie down. But there's no reason for the soldiers to be there. People have died in those demonstrations. So a couple of years before I got there, there's a gentleman by the name of Bassam Abarama. And I've seen footage and I've posted some footage on my Facebook page because he was a lovable gentleman. The whole village loved him. He used to run up and down the fence, flying kites, flying different things that were bright colours on purpose to show that he was there for peace. And he was killed by a gas canister. A soldier fired it directly into his chest and there's horrible footage of it happening. I didn't know any of this when I got to the village. I was told all about this whilst I was there and it's heartbreaking. They've got pictures of him everywhere and he's just a very likeable guy. The whole village liked him and I think the Israelis decided that, you know what, his voice is getting out there. We need to shut him up because it was unequivocal that they did this on purpose. And for people that don't know, these gas canisters can go 500 metres. And so if you're 50 metres away and you shoot at someone, it's going to kill them. And this is something that they do on a really regular basis. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Robert Martin, one of the presenters of the program here on 3CR on Saturday mornings at 9.30, Palestine Remembered. What's the impact of um, the gas that they spray on people? I, I, I thought, yeah, the kids. A, a child died not long ago who was in their home from the inhalation. And so it's very, very strong. Part of what the Israelis do, they, they sell these canisters to the rest of the world saying that they've been used and tested, as they do in Gaza. I thought, because I've never experienced this sort of thing, I'll be right. I got done twice with it, and it's very, very strong. How does that impact on you? You can't see, you can't breathe, you start to panic a little bit because you can't breathe properly, um, and it stays with you for quite a while. So the amount of canisters that they fired was incredible to me, was incredible. They did not stop, and waste of money. But the reason they do this is simply just to either practice, but also to demoralise the Palestinians. How do people recover from gas attacks like that? Because I know here in Australia you see when the police fire on demonstrators here that people are ready with water and sponges to you know, clean people's eyes and their faces. What happens when a whole group of people are sprayed with that gas in a little Palestinian village? Well, it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous there's because no a lot of the kids... Well, there's an ambulance often there, which you, know, you can only put two people in there. But it is dangerous, and people have died over the years from it. But it's also something that will hold other activists from going because it is dangerous. I mean, you can lose, lose an eye. If you suffer from you know, asthma and these sorts of things, absolutely, it'll, it'll shut your body down. But it's very, very painful. It's actually painful for many hours as well. What's it like for the people living in the village? What's their existence, I'd say? Are they farmers? How well, do they, they were farmers but there's not a lot of land left, and so they've got little gardens. So when I was staying there, I had showers. I probably never had a worse shower in my life because it was like dripping, you know, because the water pressure is so bad. That's on purpose. Everything that happens there is on purpose. The power would go off every so often. And this is in the West Bank. You can't often go to work because they can set up a barrier or a checkpoint. They'll come through at night at 3 a.m. in the morning, between 2 and 3 a.m. in the morning. This is you know, when they want to raid homes because you can't do it during the day, God forbid, when everybody's home and they can see you. Let's do it between 2 and 3 in the morning. But a lot of their life has been taken from them. There's not a lot of farming land. There's not a lot of opportunities 
to be able to, to do anything. And this is why pressure cookers start to happen. I mean, you know, I spoke to a lot of the kids in East Jerusalem of what they want to do. You know, and some say, oh, I'd really like to be a doctor, but what's the point? How do the kids get to school? Buses, walking, depending on where they live. I didn't do any trips with the, the kids in the West Bank to go to school. One thing I did notice is the kids get up very late. I have kids, they go to bed at 7, and they get up at about 7. The kids over there, they're up till midnight <laughs> because there's not a lot else to do during the day um, and the night because I suppose mum and dad don't have jobs. Some of them do, but it's getting more difficult. Traumatised children have trouble sleeping at night? I, uh, that's something that I thought about when I was there because I know what my kids are like. You know, the slightest thing can scare them. But the fact that what they've seen, there would be PS, PTSD all throughout that region. Spending time with Hamdi and his family, I was spending time with a gentleman, he was Iyad Banat, who travels the world speaking. He had a son who was shot through the leg. He was 14 at the time. He wasn't being part of a protest. It's gone through his nerve in his leg, so he'll always have a limp. The day before that they were at a, at a protest and one of his friends was shot through the neck a few years ago. Now, you'll never be the same. Me hearing these stories, I'll never be the same. But there's not one of these children that haven't had a mother or a father, a brother or a sister, an uncle or an aunt, or possessions taken or removed from them. And so it's a massive problem throughout Palestine. When you said that there were all those soldiers up on the hill, does that mean that the settlements were on that hill? They were on the Palestinian side. Pretty hard to get to the settlements from Berlin. The wall is very, very tall, so it's almost impossible. But again, they're just you know, saying, hey, you need to submit. So I was there for a few days. I travelled to another particular area. While I was there, a young child by the name of Inas was killed. She was a five-year-old. She was hit by a settler. Her best friend, who she was walking home from kinder, is today brain damaged and so will never be the same. I wanted to go and visit this family. The people that I was with organised it where we could go and visit. Naomi Wolf, who was a famous author in America, helped do this a banner on Facebook. It's had 2,500 signatures. Fantastic. Really, really nice. And the reason for it was we wanted to go and just say, hey, we know you're alone. We know you're hurting. We want you to know that the world is watching. Well, I got harassed going there. What was the circumstances of the girl's death? Hit by a car. By whom? Settler. And the settler didn't stop. If someone that hits two children doesn't stop, doesn't go back to see if they're okay, to me shows an intent. Now, any human that can do that to five-year-olds walking back from kindergarten is a psychopath or heavily indoctrinated to think that these people are below human. So when I went to visit... I got harassed by the soldiers saying, you can't be here. I couldn't believe what was happening. So not only was this poor family suffering from losing their five-year-old daughter, they were living not far from where the settler was, and they were getting harassed by the IDF. Because they're there all that time to protect the settlers from these dreadful Palestinians who yeah. are out to get them. Yeah. I've said this before, but I know that um, if I had my family harassed, intimidated, I would have become a martyr because I and you and anybody listening would do anything for their family, protect their family. But what's going on over there 
is, is state-sponsored demonising of an entire people. And, you know, and then there's an uproar when they fight back. You know, we have the audacity to judge them that are getting colonised by Israel for fighting back, and we call them terrorists. Tell me what it was like visiting the family, who, who the family are, and other children mourning their sister. So I was there with, with mum and dad and granddad. They're, you know, the Palestinians are very family orientated. Now, they all live together. You know, they're all cousins. They're all related to each other. They all love each other. Look, there weren't many words spoken because I don't speak Arabic and their English was very broken. But I had tears in my eyes, as they all did. And just to see kids like this who have lost their sister but then being intimidated is horrible. It's just horrible. There was no empathy from the soldiers because they were just intimidating again. But I think they enjoyed the fact that I said that the whole world is watching. and the Because the banner was quite a few metres long and you know, had a picture, so it was fantastic. But knowing that I can leave, they can't really. Knowing that if they protest, they'll get intimidated and harassed is a horrible, horrible story. I can't believe that there's not more, more stabbings and shootings and suicides. Where else did you go? So I spent some time in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem was a, was a real eye-opening place for me because it's you know, very, very close to where everything happens. But it's also an area where Israel's trying to get rid of the Arabs. Could you describe East Jerusalem? It's a very, very old, isn't it? It is very old. Now, there's a particular street where this young boy, Mohammed El Kurd, who is now in America on a scholarship, when he was 14, he went to school and he came home from school. Two settlers moving into his house, the front of his house. There's video footage of the settlers going in there celebrating as they take all of the furniture out. So over the next few years, he's had to put up living with settlers. And they're, you know, they're good Jews from America, flown in for you know, two weeks to two months at a time to harass and to be nasty. He got bitten by one of their dogs, the young Palestinian, Mohammed, and uh, they were told not to call again. Just explain that again. They've moved into his house and he's still there. So they had an extension on their okay. house. And it's like a unit. They don't live in extravagant homes over right. there. And so they were building the unit at the front because the family lives together. They couldn't get a permit. Israel kept saying, you know, you'll get a permit. Just keep doing what you're doing. Well, the day that it was finished, they said, guess what? This is no longer yours. You don't have a permit, so we're going to give it to some, to some Israelis. And that's what happened. And there's some, you know, there's footage. There's live footage of this actually happening. So when I visited there, it took a while for him to open up to me. But once he knew I was there seriously wanting to, to know the truth, he really opened up to me. And the story was horrific to hear this from a, from a young boy. So I went to the front of the house and I interviewed the settler. Red hair, no curls, no religion, didn't work. And I asked him questions and he was saying, you know, yeah, I was told I'm allowed to live here. My parents were born here. I asked what he did for work. He doesn't do any work. I asked how long he'd been there, a few weeks. Clearly, they're only there as transient people just to occupy it. Across the road, there's also another house, and this is in Siwan, so there's a street that, you know, it's very famous. People can Google it. There's a house across the road where um, another family was told to get out of their home. Their couch is still on the street. For one year, they lived opposite their house whilst the settlers were there. What would anybody say about that? So the same street, I also saw a house demolition. And, you know, walking down, and it's because this particular part is where they're trying to get rid of them. They're trying to make it Jewish. And when you see um, 
mother and a father. They had about five kids and their, their cousins and families. You know, they all lived together. Were big caterpillar trucks, IDF soldiers, some covered with, with their faces covered, telling everybody to move, heavily, heavily armed as they bulldozed the house. Caterpillar bulldozers as well? Yeah, bulldozing the house. And I've got footage of all of this, so anyone can say, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I've got footage, and it's off my own camera, and my face is in it. Just so there's no shadow of a doubt that all of the pictures that I took and all of the experiences I had, I was there. Because everybody that tells me that they're pro-Israel, 99.5 or 99.9% of them have never seen what their beloved Israel is doing to the indigenous population of Palestine. Did the soldiers try and stop you filming in certain places? Yes. So I've got, uh, I have footage of them telling me that they were going to shoot me. Uh, this was in Berlin. The soldiers, that was the first day, so before the march, I was round in a home with having coffee and cigarettes and smoking shisha, and Hamdi had a phone call. And he said, they said, quick, you have to come to the top of the hill. We went up to the top of the hill, and there were soldiers taking children's playground equipment. So again in Berlin... Palestinian village, no need for them to be there, the Israeli soldiers, none, were taking children's playgrounds equipment. And there are no playgrounds around this area, so there's no reason. The only reason, and I'll ask you, what do you think that reason was? To provoke? So when I got up there and I started filming them, and you know I'm a white guy, I think they thought I was a pom, and held up their M16s, I asked them what they were doing, they told me they were protecting Israel, they said something in Arabic, behind me and Palestinian kids didn't move. It was about 10 or 15 under 17 year olds. And then they said something looking at me and they all bolted. And I was told later that they had said that if they didn't leave, the Palestinian kids, if they didn't leave, they were going to shoot me. But I told them that I, you know, I told the soldiers that I had cameras on both hills because I know what they're like and I was here obviously as a, uh, as a journalist and they thought twice and they left. But as they left they threw some stun grenades how old are they? The soldiers? Mm. These soldiers wouldn't have been very old at all. Maybe 18. So pretty new. Totally indoctrinated. 100%. Yeah. One thing I do like to mention is that I have an uncle who is the general manager or the CEO of a particular development business called Christians for Israel. And so I promised him that I would go and you know, do a tour because you know, the only way you can make a judgment is to see both sides. I went and saw his 2IC. Now this 2IC takes tours from anyone in the world that wants to find out about Christianity and Israel and all of these things. And so when I sat with him, he said to me, Rob, where have you been staying? I said, oh, I've been staying in Berlin. And he's, his whole face dropped and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've been staying in Berlin, the village. And he said, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that, Rob. Very, very dangerous. And I said, what do you mean? And he told me how dangerous it had been and all of these things that he supposedly knew. And then I told him, I said, I agreed with him. It was a very dangerous place because I had my life threatened twice. And he said, yeah, 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 see? But I said it was the Israeli soldiers. And I asked him, have you ever been there? He said, no, I wouldn't. How the hell can this man be doing tours of Christians for Israel and he has never set foot in there, never spoken to a Palestinian? But this is what happens. It's like our politicians. It's like all of these people that proclaim to be experts have never sat foot in a Palestinian area and spoken to it. And all these politicians and journalists who actually go on those study tours paid for by the Zionists. 
to Israel and come back with glowing reports of the wonders of Israel, this first world country. But if they crossed the border... Well, the buses go through. So I saw the big white buses. And, you know, you can see those ones because they look very expensive and they don't get out. They want to get out. Uh, And it's very sad. But I did a few um, Jewish pro-Israel tours. And, you know, I asked. They were very... On the, you know, this is our land, the Arabs don't want us here. And I had a lot of racist comments from the Israeli side because they would open up to me because they wouldn't know whether I'm Jewish, American, English. They wouldn't know what side I'm on. And it was amazing. So I asked about, you know, I asked all the Palestinians what they thought of the Jews. And they were pretty quick to say, we don't have a problem with the Jews, it's Zionism. We just want to be left alone. But on the other side, you know, when you're in a, you know, you're in a bar or a restaurant and you sort of just make conversations... And you say, what do you think of the Palestinians? It's, oh, you know, they're pretty dangerous. Did you meet any Israelis who actually supported Palestinians? Because there are. There are many, but they don't get the voice that we need. Did you manage to meet any? Absolutely. Absolutely, I did. And I met a few at the Berlin March, because they'll come across and they'll do that. But I, I would ask a lot whether or not they've been over the other side. Because the only time that they do go on the other side is in their uniforms, because they have to. And so you'll have every Israeli say, yeah, of course I've been over there. Well, you've had an M16 on you, you've been looking at the people in a demeaning way, and you're going to have fear of these people looking at you. I mean, don't tell me you've been, because you haven't. That is a false way to go over. But there are many, many Israelis that that are becoming woken up, I suppose, and their voices are great. There's Miko Paled, Ronnie Barkin. There's a lot... Um, that are travelling the world now starting to say you know, what we're doing is wrong and I've seen it and I have not come across one person that has been on the other side the West Bank as a civilian immersed themselves in the village and come back pro-Israel and they do go to Berlin and they do put their lives on the line as you did yeah absolutely it's the only way you can, you can tell but you can come home they stay there and they go through that yeah. Every day of the week. Yeah, and imagine, imagine how some of the Palestinians feel. I'm an Australian. I can go in and out of their country. I have more rights than they do in their own country. Yet we're saying that Israel is okay? That doesn't make sense. I mean, I think it was 60,000 uh, Jewish people made Aliyah last year. So they can convert and become a citizen. But yet the Palestinians who have been living there and the millions that have been kicked out can't go back. Again, I mean, if this isn't apartheid or colonialism or racism, I don't know what is. They need to change the definition. Was there one particular highlight? The highlight that I had overall was the people in general, how welcoming they were. They only cared about me and my well-being, which I found flabbergasting because they're under occupation, colonialism, but they were worried about me. The most beautiful people in the world, most beautiful. I've never felt so at home whilst I was there and I've made lifetime friends and I wish everyone could make that trip because they would actually see a difference a different side but beautiful people you can be read up on the entire thing but until you go you'll never know and I think everybody should go the Palestinians is the best thing that we can do is to actually go and you're going again I'm going again very soon what do you hope to see this time that you didn't in your previous trips? Well, last time I didn't have a plan because I was going completely ignorant and I went with a completely open mind and so I, everything hit me very quickly. 
all, all of the things that happened to me I didn't plan and so it was very ad hoc but this time I have a, a lot of plans and ideas uh, I'll document everything in writing and everything that uh, I see and do because I have a responsibility now to the Palestinians but also to humans for human rights to come back and say this is what I've seen you need to do something just finally you got back from Palestine what was your relationship with Nasser then that you'd been to his homeland we've always had a great relationship we've always had a great relationship because he's a kind of person typical of Palestinians do anything for you opens his, his heart his checkbook whatever you need he'll do so that never changed but I could empathise with him and what his father went through because there seems to be something about Palestine and the Palestinians' heart. I asked a lot of the Palestinians, would you want to leave? And they all said no, because there's something about the Palestinians and the land of Palestine. And I can now empathise with Nasser, his family and the entire Palestinian population. I can see where they're coming from. So, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And that's Robert Martin, who spent time with Palestinians and Israelis a little while ago, speaking about that visit and his next visit, which is, I believe, later this year. And you can hear more of Robert with Yusuf and Nasser on Saturday mornings here at 3CR from 9.30 to 10. And the program is called Palestine Remembered. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Far-right nationalists face court in Melbourne yesterday at the Melbourne Magistrate Court charged with defaming a public structure without consent, willful damage and inciting racial contempt. A false charge of behaving in an offensive manner in public was withdrawn by police. It was day one of what is expected to be a three-day hearing. Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism was at the court yesterday. Debbie, just remind the listeners of the origin of those four charges levelled at the three members of the United Patriots Front. This was the third time that three 
neo-Nazis connected with the United Patriots Front, that's Blair Cottrell, Neil Erickson, and Chris Shortis, have had to front up to the magistrate's court. Yesterday, the third time, was actually the hearing, which is expected to go for about three days. They're in court because of a violent, racist, Islamophobic stunt that they had performed in Bendigo in October of 2015. And what they did, this was a very sensitive time when there was a battle over permission to construct a mosque in Bendigo. What they did was that they dressed up in a parody of Arabic Muslim men shouting Allah Akbar and beheading an effigy of a person and then throwing the red-soaked head against the wall of the council. So they're facing charges of serious religious vilification, damages to property, and offensive behavior. Just go back to that time. Who was there and witnessed what they were doing? I really don't know. I can't say, but obviously somebody must have, possibly people, you know, just um, around the council building, but I, I really don't know who exactly was at the scene at the time. You could imagine it would be traumatic if people did watch that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's violent. It's incitement to violence, and it's serious. Why has it taken so long to get to this stage, which is still a hearing? Again, I, I don't know. It's um, how the, the law and the courts perform. I think in a way your question is raising how much can we rely on the courts to be protecting not only the targets, in this case Muslims, but the entire community against these neo-Nazis. And what we say in Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is that we're never able to rely on the courts. And it's not just a, a matter of slowness either. I mean, even if the courts were to, or the magistrate's court were to find that the, the charges are to be upheld and the three of them are punished, that does nothing to stop them. It does nothing to stop any neo-Nazis who are trying to get a foothold, you know, into the communities and build a movement. So that's why we don't really rely on courts to protect us. And I imagine that they're also using these court appearances to promote themselves? Definitely. They are using the court as their political platform. And this is, they're saying this, and of course this is what they would do. And this is just another platform, as far as they're concerned, for spreading their dangerous ideology, their toxic ideology, and from there to continue trying to build a movement. So that's why campaign against racism and fascism have been outside the court each time. We have to be there not only to counter them, but to expose them. What happened yesterday? Well, yesterday 
Part of it was as per usual, because, of course, this is the third time we've fronted up. And, of course, the place was, um, you know, just uh, lined with police and lots of media there. But after what happened in June, when the police had openly protected the fascists against our anti-fascist counter-demonstration, after that, we expected that, you know, this could be a little bit different. And what did happen was that one of the three who were charged, Neil Erickson, he tried to pull a stunt outside the court. Um, it was a, a really silly stunt, but nevertheless provocative. And so, of course, we were there who were, you know, chanting um, our anti-Nazi, Muslims are welcome, Nazis are not, etc. And the police pushed us out into the street, out into the traffic. So the police, again, were moving against us to make room for the Nazis, the, the couple of Nazis who were hanging around on the footpath. Nothing other than that actually happened, but I think it's still showing that we are in a kind of a new period of, you know, dealing with, with the fascists in the streets. Did any of your group manage to get inside the courtroom? Uh, yes, yes, and we haven't yet got you know, details of what happened in the courtroom, but I'm sure we will. Will there also be members of CAF there today and tomorrow? Yesterday was actually the critical day, so what we'll be interested in is actually how the, three, the third day ends, if it ends on the third day. I'm just wondering in their literature lately how these far-right groups are using what happened in Charlottesville recently. Yes, yes, and I think that that's a terribly important link to be making because they're certainly, you know, rejoicing over that terrifying sight of white supremacists, which of course include the Ku Klux Klan and um, outright neo-Nazis, so they're celebrating that, and of course when you celebrate that, you're also celebrating the violence that came out of that, whereas the anti-fascist side here, what we're saying is that Charlottesville shows where that incitement of hate, which is what the neo-Nazis here are obviously about, where that actually leads and why we have to not only continue to counter them, but we've got to be countering them in, in greater numbers. And certainly those of us on the anti-fascist side are celebrating the massive responses across the United States after Charlottesville when you have huge demonstrations, anti-fascist demonstrations from Boston to Seattle to San Francisco 
and elsewhere that completely overpowered the, the little neo-Nazi demonstrations post-Charlottesville. I don't want to read too much into this, but reading the account of the first day of court on the ABC website, there were three photos of the far-right people who were facing court. I don't know what it was like on TV, but this was the ABC. So photos of the three of them. Three photos, two of um, Neil and one of Blair. But they were the only photos, and they were just photos of these three. A bit more publicity, I saw it as. So you're saying that what was on the ABC website was that they were giving more attention to to them and not to the counter-action outside? I believe so. Right, right. On the TV, well, look, they showed what mainstream media usually shows. They, They showed what appeared like a scuffle. You know, when, when Erickson was out there doing his, his maneuver. And so what the mainstream media on their television footage anyway consistently likes to show is anything that can look violent and then to also say that the police are just this neutral, you know, body in between trying to keep the two sides, the two extremist sides apart. So that's, that's how, you know, it, it appeared on the news last night. The thing is, it wasn't violent yesterday. And um, however, as I said, the police did push our side out into the street, into the traffic. The outcome of all this trial, hearing, you're not expecting too much? No, not really. Like I, like I said, whatever the outcome of it, the courts aren't there to protect the community against fascism. They're there to look at charges of, you know, religious vilification, damages to property. That's about the extent of it. And uh, meanwhile, the, um, you know, the threat of fascists. We've kept them splintered and small, and we certainly um, aim to keep it that way, but the threat is still there. So the threat can only be countered by us in the community in our larger numbers. The other thing about the courts, too, I mean, we, we can look more broadly at what courts do, and courts certainly are not on the side of, say, unionists or often protesters or people of color and First Nations people and so on. So we really do not put much store in the courts. What is planned for the 17th of September? Well, on the 17th of September, there is going to be a far-right rally called Make Victoria Safe Again. It's organized by this ultra right person named Avi Yemeni, who has a history of having been in the Israeli Defense Force, and he runs an Israeli Defense Force gym in Melbourne. He's rabidly racist, and this particular rally that he is organizing, and by the way, I should say that Yemeni has 
neo-Nazi connections, including that same Neil Erickson, Blair Cottrell, etc. And this rally of his is a law and order rally calling for more police powers to racially profile. So it is demanding, it's first of all focusing on alleged, you know, violent crime out of control in Victoria, and of course it is aimed at young people of color from the African community, First Nations, young migrants. It's focusing on that, and it's calling for the end of bail, no early release, juveniles to be thrown into adult jails, deport immigrant offenders, empower the community to use pepper spray. It's really sinister. It's a very, very dangerous rally. So Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is organizing a counter-rally. So that's going to be on Sunday, the 17th of September. It's going to be terribly important for people to come out and counter that Yemeni rally because this is a... A, a huge danger that's happening here in Victoria under our noses. And it's, it is not only a racist rally, just completely filled with racial profiling, but of course we know that police powers are used against certain targets today, and they're there to be used against any of us, whether we protest or whether we're, we look suspicious because we're poor or whatever. So we've got to be there. Where? Well, the rally is happening. The Yemeni rally is happening at Parliament House. Campaign Against Racism is meeting at the State Library at 1130 where we will be marching to Parliament House. Is there anything else people need to know? Well, just to bring people nothing nothing else except that as usual campaign against racism always has very disciplined rally because safety is our number one concern and also our security so it's going to be very carefully marshaled for everybody's safety so and people who are in the front line of fascist or or police violence can rest assured that, you know, security of everyone is absolutely paramount. So we've got to be there in our huge numbers on the 17th of September. And people should just keep watching the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism Facebook page for the latest. And there is a contact by text? Yes, there is. So if anyone wants to SMS the word subscribe to the following number, which is 0422-726-843, and you'll be getting text messages. Thanks so much, Debbie. Thank you very much, Jan. And that was Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism, speaking about the first day of a three-day hearing at the Melbourne Magistrates Court yesterday with three neo-Nazis charged with three accounts of 
willful damage, other things, not giving a great deal of hope for what might come out of that court case. But the 17th of September is the rally to meet at the State Library. It's a Sunday at 11.30 to march to Parliament House. And that um, contact text number is subscribe and then 0422726843 to keep in touch. Subscribe 0422726843. This is 3CR. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. anniversary celebrations anarchist will this week live broadcast wednesday 20th september 10 a.m to 11 a.m unitarian church 110 gray street east melbourne doors open 9 30 a.m live broadcast discussion lunch provided by the west Papuan community 15 dollars for the lunch join us 40th anniversary celebrations of the Anarchist World this week on Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Quoting Nostomo's research, when the great, no doubt sometimes also good, but frequently woefully ignorant amongst mining outfits, Look at a risk-laden, problematic prospect like Bougainville Copper Limited's Panguna Mine. Any upturn in commodity markets are apt to be heralded as a golden opportunity and also give a boost to the fortunes of the existing incumbent company, Bougainville Copper Limited, however dubious its ownership claims to be. To discuss this and increasingly important, the bitter local opposition, especially by the women of the area, the traditional owners. I spoke with Vicky Johns, who during and after the Bougainville Warren blockade was and is an active supporter for the people of Bougainville. Vicky, we've spoken about this before, but just to remind listeners and those who mightn't have heard the issue before, what did this mine do to the people of Bougainville both while it was operating and the subsequent brutal land and sea blockade of the island and war. The Panguna mine was an absolute disaster for the people of Bougainville. The environmental damage that was done was just dreadful and unbelievable. The mining company, Bougainville Copper Limited, started its operations in 1972. The landowners had no idea what they were in for back in 1972. 
and the landowners receive little whilst losing everything. Their culture, their land, their birthright was basically stolen from them and they had no idea or any comprehensive understanding of the absolute destruction, degradation and pollution of their land, sea and the air, what was to follow. That was 1972. There had been many peaceful protests to the mining company asking them to please do something about the environment and stop the pollution. But the protest basically fell on deaf ears and it got to the point in 1988 whereby the landowners at the Panguna mine stole some dynamite and blew up the electric pylons which stopped the mine from operating. The mine has been closed since 1988 and still closed to this day but the sad thing is a war ensued on Bougainville from 1988 till 1997 whereby 20,000 people, it's estimated that 20,000 people on Bougainville died. I'm using an article, Vicky, written in 2015, Bougainville Copper, will it get to play again? To identify, as it does, the odds that are against the mine reopening, First, the local bitter opposition, especially by women, to the mines reopening. And as you've pointed out, there's plenty of reasons why the women in particular are very bitter and do not want this mine to be reopened. Yes, the women are the landowners. It's a matrilineal society in Bougainville. So the women play a major part when it comes to their land rights. And what's recently happened is that the mining company, Bougainville Copper Limited, wants to resume mining again after all this time. And recently there was a a big protest by the women at Morgan Junction. That's a a junction like the road that leads up to the Panguna Mine, whereby they protested to stop an agreement being signed by the Bougainville government and the mining company. So the protest, the women blockaded and protested the road to stop the signing of a memorandum of understanding by the government and Bougainville Copper Limited to reopen the mine. At the same time, that was on the 16th of June, just gone, 16th of June 2017, and on the same day, the National Court of Papua New Guinea granted a court injunction ordering that the agreement cannot be signed until further notice. The chairperson of the Special Mining Lease Landowners Association, Mr Philip Miriori, welcomed the order, the restraining order. So at this stage, no agreement has been signed. It's in the hands of the National Court. Okay, well, let's look at some of the reasons that the article looks at about this mine and first off a new mine is at least five possibly ten years away from any profitable production you believe it could be even further than that don't you i do i've been um i also know the um article and website you're referring to but i found it extremely interesting to go over the bougainville copper limited annual reports and the research done by Dr. Mark Muller of the Nostroma Research Centre. So if I could just go over just some of those reports from, say, 2003 to, say, yeah, 
currently, or 2016. So the mine's been shut since 1988. Then Bergenville uh, Copper Limited Annual Reports in 2003 says that there is no indication from the landowners or the Bougainville government that mining is welcome. So that's 2003. Yet in 2009, the Bougainville Copper Limited Annual Report appeared to be more optimistic, stating that management was enthusiastic to study a mine restart at Panguna and uh, that Rio Tinto will be a great assistance with its expertise and mine development experience. So big shift from we're not welcome to all of a sudden in 2009, you know, they're pumping it up, shall we say. Then in 2011, the chairman of at the time of Bougainville Copper Limited, Peter Taylor, asserted that there was widespread agreement that Bougainville's economic future needs mining and that they were Bougainville Copper Limited was also estimating that the cost of reopening the Panguna mine would be approximately $3 billion in US dollars. So that was 2011, yet the following year, their annual report states in 2012, saying that it would cost at least US $5 billion. To date, there's no pre-feasibility study that hasn't been carried out. There's been no bank feasibility study carried out either and no political risk insurance or sovereign risk insurance carried out either. So the other point is too that whilst the company, the mining company is you know, coming back now so enthusiastically, it seems that there's no money in, in, in their account to do so. So in 2014, the, the Bougainville Copper Limited annual report recorded an overall loss of 175.7 million kina, which is approximately 65 million US dollars. The other factor is, from my own research, it's um, highly, un- highly unlikely that any government or export credit agency or the World Bank would get involved, knowing the risks. What about the amount of copper and gold that they believe is still in that mine? Is that in dispute? I think it is, Jan, but I'm, I, unfortunately I don't have that in front of me. I think that, well, first of all, yeah, the amounts of, coal, of gold and copper at Panguna is probably not worth its value, basically, to a global investor or competitors, so it may fail. I can't actually remember the amount of gold and copper that's supposed to be there. So attracting, you know, mine development funds, they, they, the Bougainville Copper Limited may have to acquire new prospecting ground. That would go down well, <laughs> wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, very well. Um, yes, it certainly wouldn't be welcomed at all. But it's interesting how the current president of Bougainville, John Momus, has sort of been lured by the thought that mining is the only answer, like for Bougainville, like the devil they know, they want that devil to return. Yet yet he's so aware of their shameful history. Yes. So the, the mining company are at the moment like trying to show a positive light and how wonderful they are, and it really isn't the case. They're using divide-and-conquer tactics with the landowner groups. There are nine landowner groups from the site of the Panguna Mine right down to the Port Augusta Bay on the coast uh, that have been affected by the mine when it was in operation. 
So they all have to be considered. But what appears to be happening is that there's a, a joint steering committee preparing for the mines reopening, if that does happen, but they're not including major land owners like the women. They also point to the fact that reopening the mine would materially increase threats to the integrity and health of the landowners' land and water. Well, we know, don't we, what happened previously with um, the land and the water? Absolutely disastrous, dreadful and unbelievable. The amount of poisonous tailings that went into the Jabber River, because there are no environmental laws and still aren't to this day, uh, there are no impact statements of what the mine would do to the people when it started back in 1972. So all the poisonous tailings went straight into their river system, the major river being the Jabba River, that went miles and miles down to the coast, to Augusta Bay. The tailings just... The environmental impact has been catastrophic. So, And it's been stated by scientists over the years that all the aquatic life in the Jabra Valley has been killed. The, well, the most, or majority, I should say, people in Bougainville do not want that mining company to return. The, the mining company's got a spin there. The spin is that we know what's best for you kind of attitude, that white colonial master mentality. And all they're thinking about is their shareholders and their dollar signs. Their attitudes haven't changed they really don't consider the people of Bougainville. They're using divide and conquer tactics and we, we really must support the, the people of Bougainville with their cry and that is no BCL, which is Bougainville Copper Limited, no mining. We must also support the people with their referendum that's coming up in June 2019, whereby we hope they win that vote on independence but it also appears from what I've picked up is that the government of Papua New Guinea has the last say. We've spoken about the threats to the, or the previous threats to the, the health of the land and the water. What were the health impacts for the people in the vicinity of the mine during that operation? And also what happened to the health of the people after that long blockade, land and sea blockade, which was supported by the Australian government? Going back to the, the mining back when it started in 1972, so their environment was totally destroyed, so was the river. Therefore, they couldn't grow their crops, their food. They couldn't fish anymore. So that's a, a major catastrophic case of, you know, how do people survive when they're subsistence farmers. Secondly, the dust and the poisons from the mine also affected people. Asthma, all those kind of respiratory kind of illnesses or diseases that come with that. And then when the mine was finally shut in 1988, a blockade was imposed on the island of Bougainville. That meant no one in, no one out, no journalists, no medicines. No human rights advocates, nobody in. So a military blockade from the air by helicopters, by the sea, by patrol boats, and on land with by the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces, all sponsored by our Australian tax dollar. The war went from 1988 
till 1997, and repeating again, 20,000 people died during that time from preventable diseases as well, but also by the slaughter and bombardment and murderous tactics of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force. Australian helicopters kitted out with um, machine guns, burning down villages, etc. What about compensation for the people? If, if that mine came into production again, would they have to pay compensation for past damage to the people and their land? Apparently there are some royalties or some sort of compensation that way that are owed to the people. I'm not actually sure at this stage whether that's been paid, but apparently money was put aside for that to happen. I'd have to look into that, Jan, but I know that they had taken that into account. But if the mine in those early years was an absolute ecological disaster in many aspects, why would reopening this mine be any different? What would they do differently? I can't see them doing anything differently. They need eight billion US dollars to start oh sorry, five billion US dollars, that's about eight billion in Australian dollars to restart the mine and they'll be doing every kind of shortcut they possibly can. Well we're thirty years later, sure, the mining technology would be more perhaps a little bit more environmentally friendlier. But there are no environmental laws in Bougainville at this stage in time or in Papua New Guinea. It's, it's disastrous what these mining companies, particularly Australian mining companies, are doing to the people. I really do uh, think that from what I'm understanding, the majority of people in Bougainville do not want mining at this stage. If anything, they certainly don't want it on the scale that Bougainville Copper Limited did it to them, which included Rio Tinto, you know, there are people like panning for gold and they want small scale rather than these monstrous mega mines that are just affecting so many people. And just give us an idea of how big that mine was and still is. I think it was six kilometres across. So it's an open pit mine and around a kilometre deep, the prior managing director who's since passed away of Bougainville Copper Limited said it's the biggest, it will just be the biggest man-made crater and has been in the southern hemisphere. And I'd imagine the tailings dams would overflow pretty frequently into the river? Absolutely and straight in it goes. It's poisonous, it's toxic and it's all the way down the river to the coast. So, And the other thing is that since Rio Tinto have gifted, or I say pushed off, their share, their um, Bougainville Copper Limited shares equally to the Bougainville government and the Papua New Guinea government. So on the 30th of June in 2016, Rio Tinto exited Bougainville Copper Limited knowing that the price of the clean-up, you know, the rehabilitation of the land, the environment, the ecosystems you know, is a massive job. But they've just walked away because, according to them, they were compliant with the law because there was no environmental law. So at this current stage in time, both the Bougainville government and the Papua New Guinea government 
have the shares, shares, the Rio Tinto shares, and own 36.4% each. Absolutely scandalous. It's shocking. It's like, uh, how, how come, like, there isn't anyone to hold these revolting mining companies responsible for what they're doing to other people in our neighbourhood, the Pacific Islands and all over the world. You know, where is that accountable body against these horrible mining companies? And then you've got people like Momus, who was there during the, all the conflict time, and, and he's accepting those shares on behalf of the government of Bougainville. It's absolutely shocking. I, and I don't understand, because... President Momus is totally aware of their shameful history. So whether he's being, you know, bribed or being corrupted, you know, by Bougainville Copper Limited to say yes to mining is the question. You know, I'm connected to people in Bougainville and I've heard others say that, you know, the mining company has also offered some landowners a brand new land cruiser if they sign the agreement. The old divide and rule. Absolute divide and rule. Absolute divide and conquer. It's absolutely shocking. What's happening with the with the ex-combatants from that time? Are they still actively opposing that mine reopening? Uh, again, a, a handful, it appears to be of those combatants, um, have been manipulated and possibly also offered land cruises. They're also falling for that same furphy. The only way to get independence is to have mining. The call from the majority of people has been, we don't need mining. We want our independence first. When we win our independence, then we may consider mining. But all this, the push is coming from Bougainville Copper Limited and its shareholders. That's where the push is coming from. So everyone's got this idea that the mining is going to solve Bougainville's answer to independence. The thing is, there are other things that the people in Bougainville could be doing, you know, agriculture, horticulture, farming, fishing, tourism. But the current president of Bougainville, John Momus, doesn't seem to be acting on any of those alternatives. What support are the women landowners getting within Bougainville and also outside of Bougainville to keep their struggle going? Well, the women are just, you know, they're, they're so determined that, that, that the mining company will, you know, will never be invited back. They do not want to see Bougainville Copper Limited ever return to Bougainville and they certainly don't want to see any mining. They are very aware what Bougainville Copper Limited did to, you know, to their environment, you know, 20,000 people dead because of Bougainville Copper Limited wanting to reopen its Panguna mine. They are adamant they don't want them back. They're staying strong in their call and they should be highly supported by, you know, the rest of us. I have a dear friend actually who's in Bougainville at the moment. I think she's due back towards the end of September, so maybe the, when she's back I can make contact and maybe you could interview her, Jan, when she returns. Okay. So at the moment it's a stalemate, is it? It's a stalemate, yep. There's that court injunction ordering that the memorandum of um, agreement between Bougainville uh, Copper Limited and the Bougainville government 
about reopening the mine. That's come to a standstill because of that court injunction. We just have to wait and see the outcome of that court case. Okay, well, I hope to speak to your friend soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Jan. And that's activist for Bougainville, Vicky John, and hopefully we'll be hearing more about that at the end of this month. This is 3CR, and it's just turned 5.30 in a moment. What's really happening on Mindanao in the Philippines? I need somebody help, not just anybody help. You know I need someone Liberty Victoria presents Fearless Voices, a compelling afternoon blending the sweet and angry songs of John Lennon, performed by Liz Stringer and Matt Walker with a cacophonous cabal of shouters, Casey Bonetto, Alicia Sometimes, Paul Stewart and Stuart Grant, along with Melbourne's best slam poets. The event will be emceed by Johnny Topper on Sunday the 1st of October at the Thornbury Theatre. Doors open at 2pm and for bookings head to Liberty Victoria. Fearless Voices, Sunday the 1st of October, 2pm at the Thornbury Theatre. Liberty Victoria, defending and extending civil liberties and human rights, is a 3CR supporter. Moving to the Philippines and I'm speaking with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. Peter Marawi in Mindanao, the southern island of the Philippines. Stories abounding that it will be the centre of a new ISIS caliphate now that Raqqa has fallen. Well, I think it's a sort of grand diversion from the real problems going on in Mindanao and the Philippines. And uh, what we've seen in Marawi City over the last three months is really shocking but it's uh, uh, a pattern that's been there uh, in western part of Mindanao for the last 25 years with the Abu Sayyaf group beginning in the early 1990s and continuing itself all the way through to now and t- relatively small groups of uh, perhaps some of them Islamic inspired but really criminal gangs capturing towns, terrorising civilians and uh, robbing banks and and so forth all through these last 25 years. And the fact that somebody can put the label IS on this group, which is quite a reasonable thing to do in a way, doesn't mean that it's uh, somehow a catastrophic event. What's really catastrophic in the Philippines is that millions of people are very, very poor and that uh, it's possible to... It's a sort of a lawless society where the, the police, the military, local, private warlords can uh, do whatever they like really with impunity to scrounge, rake off uh, whatever income or wealth is is available in the community. And um, we're seeing a a crisis around Marawi City, I would call it a human catastrophe because there's nearly half a million people displaced, but it's, it's not the kind of thing that is a threat to the Philippines state really. How much of the city itself is left, Peter? I've read reports that in just the last days the Philippines military has brought in more tanks, ammunition and brand new weapons in support of troops fighting to flush out any remaining militants. 18 tanks, 2,000 M4 rifles, 
FA-50 fighter jets are there, dropping bombs, mortars, howitzers, attack helicopters, bomber planes. I think the core of Marawi City is uh, destroyed or being destroyed as we speak. We've seen the images of uh, buildings which are heavily uh, marked with gunshot and uh, some blasts, but I think now uh, I've seen that President Duterte has given an order to bomb uh, completely the area identified where where they're calling themselves the Mounted Group uh, fighters are are based there. So uh, it's a small part of the centre of Marawi City and uh, unfortunately I think it will be bombed to oblivion and completely flattened. That part of Marawi City will look like Mosul and other cities and images we've seen from Syria. That's... uh, you know, a rather brutal outcome of this particular uh, uprising or shootout that, that's taken place. And the half a million people? Uh, well, I think that they'll, they'll be displaced for quite a while because their uh, livelihoods, their homes, you know, are being destroyed or have been destroyed and uh, it, will, it will take uh, some... Knowing what happens after typhoons and other natural disasters in the Philippines, uh, it will take several years for people to get some kind of normal life back again. What's Australia's role there that you know of and what's it likely to be in the future? Unfortunately, the the Prime Minister, Mr Turnbull, has made uh, this an issue for himself as the Prime Minister. He's elevated the crisis in Marawi City into a national security threat, which is really absurd. So, uh, you know, we're upping the stakes for Australia's intervention in in internal affairs of the Philippines. And uh, I think, having said that, that, that in fact there'll be no extra Australian military or intelligence effort going on around Marawi City than than has been going on for decades in the Philippines. So uh, the P-3 Orion aircraft, which have been in the news so often for allegedly assisting with intelligence, they're basically patrolling north of Australia towards China. They've been doing it for decades and uh, of course on that route they fly over Mindanao. So they've already been doing this eavesdropping, photography and so on on Mindanao for a long time. So it's, it's sort of a PR exercise, the claim that they're an extra uh, involvement by Australia. And uh, also as far as we know, in 2006, a unit of the Special Forces of Australia, the SAS, was sent to this part of Mindanao with uh, shallow draft um, fast boats, allegedly to stop Abu Sayyaf and the uh, Indonesian Islamic group who were involved with the Bali bombing to stop to stop them moving backwards and forwards in that area. But uh, it's, there's never been a, an announcement that they've ever come back. So I think that they, they're in Zamboanga City and, and around that area even today. So actually there's nothing new going on at all from Australia despite all the hot rhetoric from the Prime Minister and the Minister for Foreign Affairs. So... You know, we have to look at really this as more of a political exercise that the Australian government is kowtowing or obliging the United States, which which is also making similar statements about what's going on in Mindanao. And uh, all of that is to do with the US policy to contain China, to somehow 
maintain domination of the region against a rising influence from China. So we have a terrible situation that uh, people in Mindanao will be pawns in, in this type of big game and that Australia is rather cynically going along with the United States policy on that. And the unleashing of this violence on the, the whole of the Muslim population in Mindanao? Well, I think that we, you know, in, in uh, Marawi City, it's unclear really how many people were involved with the IS group, but perhaps we're talking somewhere between 200 and 500 fighters altogether fighting against the security forces. But in Mindanao, the, the bigger thing, the biggest story is the Moro Islamic Liberation Front with possibly 15,000 armed fighters who are trying to get a better deal for the Moro people through at this point of time and then for the last 15 years through peace talks, peace talks which have never come to a conclusion with the government in Manila. And uh, as well as those relatively large number of armed fighters, there's a similar number of New People's Army fighters in Mindanao, all across Mindanao, not just on the western side. And they are also fighting for uh, the overcoming of this extreme poverty and repression that's characteristic of uh, life in the Philippines and particularly in Mindanao. So uh, there's peace talks also with the New People's Army going on, but they have been suspended directly as a result of the Marawi City incidents happening or, or chaos. So uh, it, this Marawi City has event has somehow rather completely thrown off course much more positive processes which could have led to much better outcomes for all the people in Mindanao and in the Philippines. So it's, a, it's a, as I said, rather cynical that the Australian government says it supports peace in the Philippines but it, it's really undermining the peace processes. And meanwhile the, the war against the poor continues in, in the so-called war on drugs. Yes, I think uh, this is a new development uh, following on Marawi City. Finally, uh, there's been a, a day of national protest against the Duterte government's war on drugs and uh, the launching of a new movement, really, a, a big alliance called Movement Against Tyranny. And this was triggered because about two weeks ago, a 17-year-old high school student called Kian de los Santos was uh, executed by police in Caloacan City, just on the northern side of Manila. So the police story was that he's a drug dealer, and unfortunately for the police, they were captured on uh, closed-circuit TV of the local government unit grabbing this uh, young person from a basketball court and dragging him down a dark alley where his body was later found. And uh, witnesses who were near the area heard the young boy, Kian, saying, uh, is that enough? Can I go home now? I've got an exam to do tomorrow. And uh, instead of uh, being let go home, uh, he was, he was uh, shot three times in the head and left in a really grubby, dark corner. This really, it's, it's, it's always surprising how things come about, but these images struck a chord with the Filipino people as a whole, I think. And there was a really great cry of protest against this. And as a result, uh, President Duterte is, is a bit on the back foot politically now in a way he hasn't been before. 
I think that uh, it's realistic to say something like 10,000 people have been killed in the war on drugs in just uh, 14 months. So it's, it's a horrific event, in, even for the Philippines society, and uh, it's um, uh, underlined to people the impunity of the security forces, in this case especially the police, for, you know, they can do whatever they like. And the president is out there very loudly saying, go ahead and keep going and I'll protect you. So, you know, the calls are going out more and more loudly that the president is really committing a crime against humanity and that his senior police uh, should be called to account as well. Whether this can really happen in, in this uh, moment is it's unclear, but there is, I think, a completely new feature in, in uh, public life in the Philippines now that there is a, a widespread agreement that what the president is doing in the war on drugs is wrong, whereas just a few months ago it was relatively popular. If killings on this scale were happening in other countries, there'd be worldwide condemnation. Yes, I think there, it is going on in some other countries too. But, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with politics here, unfortunately. So because the Philippines is an ally of the United States and there's these bigger things going on about China and North Korea, this can happen, that, that this scale of murder of civilians can go on with uh, no particular response. What's this like, turmoil doing to the economy of the Philippines? I haven't detected any particular you know, impact on economic life in the Philippines. It's such a grim uh, battle for most people to get enough food and shelter, let alone more, that all that's happening here is that there's a, a, layer, a new layer of terror in all of the poor communities of the Philippines because people really don't know who's on a list, why they're on a list. But if they are on a list, some night these armed police can come and shoot you. So uh, people are really terrified. What's good is that because of this terrible incident of Kian de los Santos, people are somehow stepping above the, the fear and, and protesting more clearly. So um, that's the only good thing I can see in this situation. But more generally, the numbers of people having to take one, two and three year overseas contracts on relatively low wages in order to get any income for their family, that, that is just continuing to grow. And uh, the level of investment and so on going on in, in the Philippines economy itself is completely inadequate for employing, training and improving the living standards of, of its people. So I would say that this, this, is a, this killing you know, rampage is, is not really an economic event. Um, it's a political event and it may lead to some you know, convulsions in the economy, but that depends on, in a way, how the politics plays out. Not just the police doing the killings, though. They're vigilante groups. Well, that's what the police say. So people don't really know what's going on because uh, masked people turning up and shooting people uh, in the night is uh, obviously terrifying. They're not going to be really asking, who are you? And uh, these could well just be police or military intelligence uh, anyway. The, the drug business like any other <clears throat> serious business in the Philippines is run by corrupt, powerful people. So
so we're, we're really talking about the police here cleaning up or getting money out of a business which they already run. You, you've got to be really, really sober and look at it for what it is. Uh, and when they say the police say, oh, vigilantes are doing this, well, the, the vigilantes are managed by the police too. Halfway across the world, Zimbabwe, doesn't often rate a mention here in Australia, but two happenings, but they're both high-profile people. Yes, I would say that uh, there's a, a, a politics have hit a new level in uh, Zimbabwe because about three weeks ago, one of the vice presidents of the country and a contender really to replace uh, President Mugabe once he dies or retires was almost uh, killed at a uh, ZANU-PF rally in the middle of the country. He was obviously fed some food somewhere. It's unclear what it was really. But he started vomiting blood and had to be uh, escorted to a hospital quickly and then quickly moved to a South African hospital where he has recovered and he has returned to Zimbabwe. But um, nobody is in any doubt that someone tried to murder him. The finger obviously points towards President Mugabe and his wife, Grace. That had just happened, and then a, a sort of separate crisis was brewing PR-wise because the two sons of Robert Mugabe and Grace Mugabe were causing uproar in Johannesburg by being like playboys and throwing wild parties, getting kicked out of hotels and so on. So Grace Mugabe flew to Johannesburg to allegedly pull them into line. But when she got there, she started uh, be beating them with a, seems like an electrical cable with a plug on the end. She was uh, slashing at everybody and she picked on a couple of young women who were also in the same couple of hotel rooms as her sons. One of them had her head gashed open. She also allegedly pushed over a hotel worker who was in the vicinity and this woman was pregnant and had a miscarriage. So it's caused a lot of outrage in, uh, in the South Africa. And then uh, instead of her having to face some kind of charges for assault and uh, damages and so on, she was granted a diplomatic immunity and was able to return to Zimbabwe without any penalty. This caused another level of outrage. There's action taking place in South Africa from the family of the injured young woman for damages, and uh, it's you know there's a lot of legal argument about whether or not they can proceed despite the diplomatic immunity, because apparently assault is not covered by the diplomatic immunity. But also and the fact that she's not a member of the government, so why should she have? diplomatic immunity. Uh, she's the wife of the president of Zimbabwe so therefore it was a, found to be within the purview of that particular law okay. about diplomatic immunity. But COSATU, the trade union centre in South Africa, has uh, decided to ban her from coming to South Africa. So there's a sort of a political struggle within the ANC, COSATU, SACP alliance about what to do with Zimbabwe and Grace Mugabe's behaviour has triggered a bit of an increase in the tension among the different parties about what to do. All of this fits into a bigger picture where Jacob Zuma, the President of South Africa, is in a lot of political strife and he survived several no-confidence motions in the Parliament of South Africa. But soon, in December, there will be a Congress of the African National Congress itself 
and he's the president of the ANC as well. He became president at a congress replacing his forerunner, it's uh, Thabo Mbeki. The, the pattern's already there and I do think that there could well be a change in December in the ANC and Jacob Zuma will no longer be the president. But until then, uh, I think the ANC's attention is completely focused on its own internal problems and Zimbabwe is sort of falling away as a secondary problem despite the fact that it's sort of causing enormous difficulties for South Africa and this latest thing with Grace Mugabe and her sons is quite a, a more than an irritant really it's a more serious problem I think for the ANC but nothing really properly is being done to somehow return people to proper relations and, and a proper rule of law. Is it true that Grace is being touted as the next president if if their party wins when he dies? Yes, yes. It's pretty clear, I think, that Grace Mugabe wants to be the president. Uh, whether that's really the outcome, that's another thing. She's been very circumspect about that, but something changed a couple of weeks back. Again, she's been holding her own rallies again, which is very scary for people. At one of these rallies, she said that the president should name his successor and that his word would be final and so on. People think, well, she's not really asking for somebody else to be the, the new president. It's she's asking for herself to be the president. And not long before she gave that speech, another prominent politician who said the same thing got really put down firmly. You know, one rule for everyone else and a special rule for Grace again. I think that she's a, a clearly a person who has rages at the personal level. It can be very violent to people close to her. And, of course, she can be very violent to people further down the pecking order. And one other thing has happened also separately again from Zimbabwe, that is we've just seen the uh, High Court of Kenya declare the presidential elections in Kenya null and void and demand an order a new election to take place. Here's a neighbour of uh, Zimbabwe where cheating happened and for the first time ever in Africa, the judiciary was able to say, no, we're not going to allow that to, to go forward. I think this is already having repercussions inside Zimbabwe, although it's not yet clear. There's, the rumour mill's running hard, but there's, there's already a lot of um, manoeuvring about the voter role and potential cheating in the elections due in Zimbabwe next June. You know, Robert Mugabe, he's 90, he'll be 94 then, would be the ZANU-PF candidate for president again next year. It all stops out to somehow make sure that, that he wins but the Kenyan uh, case uh, is a bit of a jolt. We'll, we'll see just how they uh, respond in Zimbabwe and it may become clearer and clearer to Africa and to the international community how completely illegal the regime is in, in Zimbabwe and maybe there'll be some more effective international constraints placed on the conduct of the elections. But uh, then again, maybe not. But meanwhile, the, the economic situation of the country hasn't improved at all and people are still suffering. We're running out of adjectives to describe the economic situation in Zimbabwe. It's catastrophic and continuing to decline. Decline's probably the wrong <laughs> verb. You know, it's collapsing, crashing, like Air Zimbabwe. There was a little catastrophe with South Africa where South Africa refused to allow an Air Zimbabwe flight to take off because it didn't have the right license anymore to operate that aircraft. 
there was a tit for tat, so Zimbabwe refused to allow any South African airway flight to, to take off. This is just in, in this Grace Mugabe fiasco. That's uh, the airline. The same thing is happening in the electricity area, in the water area, in the telecommunications area, in the railway. The shortage of actual currency for people to operate by, it's actually a sort of comatose economy and people are barely, barely surviving. And you could say they're surviving because the Zimbabwean diaspora is continuing to send funds and also the governments like the British government or the European Union or the United States or Australia will here and there provide $2 million or $10 million or $30 million for some program that's humanitarian in aspect, but it, it provides an input of cash just enough to keep the thing ticking over. Yeah, these are the, the ways it's, it's, it's going on, but it's, a, it's actually, a, you know, we were talking about the Philippines being really hard. Well, Zimbabwe is, is also really, really hard, and, and yet we're not getting anything like the international discussion about what to do and how to help. Neoliberalism is wonderful, isn't it, Peter? <laughs> yeah, yes, it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking. certainly is, and that's Peter Murphy human rights and trade union activist from Sydney. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page, a 3CR supporter. that's just about it for me for today I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock until 6 o'clock and Dumbo Law will be here in a couple of minutes but let's go out with a little of Paul Kelly the song's called None of Your Business Now Bye for now